I'm Rosemary Malvey, current president of the San Jose Peninsula chapter of PFLAG. Starting with this podcast, we bring you a new feature, occasional podcast interviews with LGBTQ plus elders. We want to bring you some of the history of the LGBTQ movement in the U.S. through the stories of those who lived through and participated in that history. We hope you enjoy these podcasts. I met Roger L. nine years ago. I was a hospice volunteer, and Roger was caring for Don, his dying partner. At that point, Don and Roger had been together for 43 years. For the last few months of Don's life, I would arrive at their house in Daly City every Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. to stay with Don while Roger took himself to the local movie theater for a needed break from his 24-7 caregiving. Roger was already filled with grief, anticipating Don's upcoming death. But with the urging of his hospice team, he pulled himself away from Don once a week to catch a movie. After Don died, Roger and I began a series of Saturday morning breakfasts. Grief support and discussions centered around death and loss eventually began to include personal reviews of recent movies seen. Roger and Don were ultimate movie fans, and we shared humor about life and its foibles. Getting to know each other, we told each other our stories, and surprisingly, we found we have lots in common. I found Roger's story to be particularly interesting. I hope you enjoy meeting Roger. Hello, Roger. Hello, Rosemary. Um, Let's begin. First, why don't you tell me about your youth and your upbringing in Louisiana? Okay, I can sum that up really in one word. Difficult. Um, I was born and raised in a very small, conservative, little Louisiana town close to the Texas border, and the name of the town was De Quincey, Louisiana. Um... I was raised by a very strict Catholic mother, and I, I just early on realized that my mother wanted me to be a priest, and that's how she really formed uh, my upbringing. Um, my mother would not allow me to wear blue jeans. That really left a very difficult mark on me. Um, my mother would not allow me to go to parties where dance because she said, boys are going to be priests, don't do things like that. But long story short, it was very dark, and the best part of my growing up was my dad worked on the railroad, and we got to do many, many free trips on the train between Houston and New Orleans, and those are my happiest memories of De Quincey. And I remember very young that I, um, I'd say maybe about five or six years old, One day, I was looking out the window, and our next-door neighbors had three teenage sons. And those boys were out in the yard, you know, in their bathing suits. It was very hot there, washing their car. And I remember maybe maybe five or six years old that I really liked what I was seeing. It wasn't sexual or anything like that. I just thought that really was a very pleasant sight. And it was then that I realized I was different. And... I often heard my parents talking with my teenage sister about who was queer in school and how they would laugh about it. And it terrified me so much 
that that's how I spent my youth with a secret and trying to do everything I could to keep hide it from everyone because I knew if my parents or my family knew I would be an embarrassment, they would be ashamed of me, and I probably would want to kill myself. So I really thought the soonest I can get out of this town, the better. And um, as I was growing up, as I started to get close to ninth grade, my mother set up for me to go to seminary in Lafayette, Louisiana, which is a very religious, very Catholic town. Um, and the Immaculata Seminary was run by a group of priests called the Maris Priest. And we're all, the, I mean, we're ninth grade. We're taken away from our families and all these boys living in dormitories. So it was a horrible, horrible year for me. I barely got through it, but I made through it. Then I got to go home and spend a few weeks and I didn't want to go back, but my mother made me. Um, so when I went back, we were all getting older and I started to notice that the priests were paying very more and more attention to boys that were better looking, because believe me, I knew what a better looking boy was, more, more than some of the others. Um, and so that, of course, they wouldn't have anything to do with me because I was tall, skinny, and very gawky. In fact, my sister, my nickname was Ichabod Crane when I was growing up. Anyways, um, the priest realized that I was not a good candidate, so they told my parents that I needed to come home and be with my family. So thank God I got to go back home. But while I was at the seminary, I met a group of Carmelite nuns who were right next door to the, sem to the seminary, the Carmelite nuns in Lafayette, Louisiana. And I became very, I got friends with them and I became very attracted to their life. I, I thought, I'd really like to be a nun, you know, to live, to live this kind of life. Because I didn't know anything else. And I felt like it would be a good escape. So I went to college, and I went to college in Lafayette, so I could be close to the Carmelite nuns. And I became very close to them, and they were like fishers of men. And they caught me. And I just decided that I wanted to be a Carmelite. But I didn't want to be a priest. And I found out that the Carmelite had, they called brothers, and the brothers were, same as them, they took the vowels and so on, but the brothers did the cooking, ran the monastery, did the bookkeeping, and that's what I really felt like I wanted to do. So I entered the Carmelite order, and I, it was a good fit as I was you know, planning to be a brother. And I took to the life, and I really enjoyed it. I was a good Carmelite. And then when it came time for my profession, I was told by the priest that they had a shortage of priests, I was much too smart to be a brother, that they needed me to be a priest. And I just said I really didn't want to be a priest, but they said, well, you have to. So I acquiesced, and uh, thank goodness I did, because they started this program where all the, all the students, the priestly students from this order, from all over the U.S., were sent to San Jose, California, to study at University of Santa Clara, our major, had to be philosophy, and then we could pick a minor. So my minor was, was English and English literature. Um, I took well to the monastery in San Jose, and our first one of our first outings is we were taken on a bus to San Francisco, a city that I really ne didn't even know existed. 
And early on, I was smitten by this city. I loved it so much. And then I started to hear things about San Francisco, how very openly gay it was and how gay is very accepted there. And as we maybe once or twice a year, we got to go on these field trips to San Francisco. I really studied the area and decided that my future is going to be here in San Francisco. I'm going to live here. I'm not going to leave and go back to Little Rock, Arkansas. So um, I became friends with Brother Paul, who we kind of got close, and I confessed to him and as a secretive that I was gay. And he said he was too. And we decided to keep our secret. But he did not keep the secret. He ratted me out. And they immediately pulled me out of my room and put me in a guest room and told me I had to leave. And I only had like two months left of school in order to get my bachelor's degree at the University of Santa Clara. So it all worked out. One of the brothers' mother, who had lost her husband, took me in and let me stay with her for two, for two months and, and finish my education. And I got my bachelor's degree. I'll never forget, I went to the college graduation all by myself, and everybody had their families taking pictures and everything. And I just sat there alone, got, got my diploma, and started my path to move to San Francisco. And I, I just, I, I still was Catholic, and I prayed that that would work out. And after I left the order, I got a message from the Carmelite nuns in San Francisco. They wanted me to call them. And in those days, when you leave a religious order, it's like considered a scandal. I mean, you're, you're um, kind of a pariah in the Catholic Church. But the Carmelite nuns, they wanted to see me. So I went to see them, and the Reverend Mother told me that when she met me, she just felt something really special. She felt like I was really a special person, and no one had ever told me that before. And so she offered for me to... Uh, move there and live in a little studio apartment for $100 a month that they owned an apartment building next to their monastery. And so I took her up on it, but I couldn't find a job. And I was going to have to move back to Louisiana, you know, which would have probably caused suicide if I, that happened. And Reverend Mother got a friend of hers to hire me into the business that I'm still working in today. I was a messenger, and I had to go all over downtown San Francisco to different offices, and that job was just the most wonderful experience. I met more and more gay people, got, started to have gay friends, and um, then I needed a car, and Reverend Mother said, well, um, you'll have to buy a car, but I, I didn't make enough money. I, was, I think I was making 500 a month, if you can imagine, before taxes. Um, she got a friend of hers to co-sign if my parents would send him a letter where they would, if for some reason I couldn't pay, they would pay. So anyway, she helped me buy my new car. So it's the Carmelite order that really was the trajectory of me to San Francisco. And I lived, I have to confess, I lived a very free-spirited gay life in San Francisco of debauchery, and I loved every minute of it. I had no regrets. Um, wow, that's, that's 
I've heard your story before, but I just heard a lot more detail this time. So that's really amazing, actually. Um, so now you're in San Francisco and you're uh, living your life. Tell me how you met Don and how did you become committed to each other? And then if you don't mind, um, tell, tell us how it was to be surrounded by people that had AIDS at that time and how you and Don found yourselves to be like on an island. Those are, that's a phrase you've used with me in the past. That's a very interesting question, Rosemary. Um, like I said, you know, I'd, for, I'd say for almost three years, I, I, one of the interesting things is the year that I actually moved to San Francisco was 1969. And I remember in the gay community, 69 is a sexual term, you know. And so I always thought that was really fun. And other guys would say, God, what a nice year to have come to San Francisco. Anyways, um, I fell in love with the bathhouses. That's where I went to meet people. And I just, it was my way of just being gay and just meeting people and having a really great time. This went on for about three years. And one of the guys that I met at the bathhouse was named Larry. And we got to be real good friends. And he had a neighbor named Don who lived across the street. And one day I drove up to meet Larry. We were gonna go to the bath together. It was really hot. And I was wearing like a tank shirt and shorts. And Don saw me out the window. So he said to Larry, was that your friend Roger? And Larry said, yeah. He said, Larry, I'm going to meet him. So and he had, Larry had told me about Don and what a sweet guy he was. And he had this nice house. And I was always very curious about Don. But I had no desire to have a relationship or to have a lover. I just was having too good a time. But anyway, we arranged to meet Larry and Don and I. And when Don walked in the room, I was gobsmacked by this person. His, his, his manner, his voice, his gentleness just really attracted me. And I kind of fought it. But anyway, we all, the three of us went to dinner at a burger place called Happy Boy on Market Street. And... Um, we had dinner, and then we all came home, and Larry went back to his apartment across the street, and then Don and I went, and um, we had a wonderful evening together. And as, uh, as back in those days, you definitely had sex the first time, you know I mean? It wasn't like straight people, you know? And that started me on a path of where I was not being promiscuous anymore. As soon as I met Don, I stopped that. And... Um, we met November 14th, 1971, and that's what we consider our anniversary. Because from that day on, I never went to the baths again. I just changed my whole uh, manner. Yeah. But I, he didn't invite me to move in. We were just going together. And then about January 1972, he asked me if I, he said, well, have you thought about moving in? And I went, hello, that's all I've been thinking about. So I moved in and Don and I had this whole group of gay friends that we would get together with on holidays, we'd go places with. Every single one of them died of AIDS, even the ones who were partnered, one by one. We conducted so many funerals that we made a vow we were not gonna have funerals or memorial services when we died. Um, how many sets of balloons we set free. And we had 
I still have cards where I have notes for, for the different eulogies that we made. We lost all of our friends to AIDS. We had to watch them die one by one. And it was a horror you can't imagine. The BAR, the, the gay paper, it was page after page of obituaries with pictures of beautiful men that we've seen on the Muni, you know, I saw in the bars, so on. So AIDS really was the most traumatic experience that Don and I went through. And because of our devotion to each other, we survived it because we were monogamous. But our friends who were partnered weren't monogamous, and they all got this terrible, terrible scourge that the gay community got, and that kind of alienated us. Don and I had friends that would all, lady friends that would hug and kiss us. When AIDS started, they wouldn't even shake our hands. They wouldn't let us, they wouldn't want to kiss us anymore. So AIDS really affected us too. And Don got pneumonia once, and everyone thought he had AIDS. If, if a gay person got sick in those days, you, you had AIDS. So we had to live with that for a really long time. So that's how AIDS affected us. It wiped out our, our friend, our extended families, mm -hmm. one by one. I think of it when I hear that song by Queen, and another one bites the dust. That's what describes Mind and Don's life for years, many years through the 70s and 80s. And oh, one aside, Don and I volunteered for Project Open Hand, who delivered for 10 years, all during the 80s. Every weekend we delivered meals to these boys who different stages of illness. And um, so we were very proud of that. After 10 years, Open Hand said, it's time for you to move on to something else, you know. And so, you know, that we, we met a lot of people through mm -hmm. Project Open Hand, too. Right. We marched in the gay parade. One time we marched. We loved to go to the gay parade, but we liked to see it. But one year we marched with our Project Open Hand, and it was a wonderful experience. But we missed the parade, so we, we never marched in again. We wanted to see the parade. So. Yeah. We were together 40 wonderful years. The last three years were sure hell for both of us. Our whole lives completely fell apart when he had cancer diagnosis. He had one of the worst cancers of the esophagus. Um, I had to retire early from my job to take care of him. And it took two years for Don to waste away. I had to watch that disease eat him alive and it, the only good thing is that after Don died, I, I went to grief counseling. But anyway, that is what changed my life, is the grief counseling. I got a whole new set of friends from grief counseling. Um, I have to tell you, I don't think you even know the whole story. The night Don died, it was April 23rd. At about 11th or April 23rd, 2013, and he started going into a convulsion type thing where he was struggling to breathe and cough. And I was holding him in my arms and I was trying to call the hospice nurse, but I just couldn't dial, I couldn't let go of him. And this went on for about an hour. And about 12:30, he went limp in my arms and he died. And I finally got through to the hospice nurse, and the hospice nurse came out and said that, yeah, he was dead. And so Don, years and years ago, thank God, Don set us up to prepare for our end of life. We paid for in our niche in the Woodlawn Cemetery. Um, 
we were to call the mortuary. We had all the instructions when there was a death to call the mortuary. Tried to call the mortuary and their phones were not working. Their phones would just ring, they didn't answer. I had to lay in bed with Don's body for nine hours. And that, that was traumatizing, but yet I was so happy to be spend the last nine hours with him. They finally came out to take his body away. I was sitting in that chair right there, and my friend Miranda came out. Miranda had told me, I don't care what time it is, call me. And it happened. So I called her in hysterics, and she came out immediately and stayed with me. So when they took Don away, that was really the end of my life. I had to, at least once a day, I have a moment where I cry. But I always feel better after. I feel a little bit cleansed. But we both have talked about the fact that Don would want you to go on and live your life. Um, I think you've all often told me you hear his voice in your head. What, yes. So, Roger, tell us what your life is like right now. Well, after not working for nine months and after losing the person who, met, who I love most in the world and this wonderful, idyllic life ended, I just felt like I could never go back to work. I had to try to find a new life for myself. And then I had this very good friend named Dee Dee. And she used to tell me, she was like 99 years old, very wise, and said, you need to go back to work. And I would say, Dee Dee, I just, I can't do it emotionally. Long story short, Dee Dee had a stroke while I was having dinner with her. And she died a few months later. I went to her funeral and burial. I came home and I had a message on my answering machine from this company I had never heard of. And they said, a friend of yours in, this, in our business told us about you and that you have a good reputation in the industry. We need to talk to you. So I called them. They urgently needed to hire someone because a, per a person that was working for them had to take care of her mother and had to take a leave of absence. And they needed someone experienced that they didn't have to train. So they hired me on the spot. Thus, now, for, for the last nine years, I've been working. And it's changed my life. It's really brought a lot of joy into my life. And it's brought a lot of money into my life, too. So I'm able to maintain my lifestyle. So that's where I am today, still working at 77 years old. And I work in an industry where young people are just not going into it and they can't find experienced people. So more and more seniors and I are coming back to work. And I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. And I have a very secure job. One last thing, Roger. You... You, I know what your life is like right now. You're still an absolute, total, yeah. devoted movie buff. Yeah. And you met somebody in That's the That's what I want to tell you. I'm talking about um, the, the, the hospice and the grief counseling. The weird thing is, after Don died, so many of people that I thought were our good friends backed away. They gave their condolences, and that was it. I never heard from them again. So I had no, I had no friends. Grief counseling, I met, these, all of them were women, except one man, and we got to be really good friends. And there's one in particular who became my sidekick. I call her my um, Amazon woman. Her name is Mary Ann. She orders everything on Amazon, anything I need. She gets on Amazon and orders it for me. 
she took Don's opera ticket. She took Don's Broadway show ticket. And so now I have a companion to do things like that that I used to do with Don that I thought I would never do again because I didn't want to do it alone. And then we, we have other friends, Mary and all these women I met at Grief Counseling, and they're my new family. They're my new friends. And what about Alan? Okay, my cousin, Melanie, who lives in San Francisco and married to a very well-known, successful doctor, told me after, after I lost Don, he said one of his co-workers has in the same situation. His partner was dying of cancer, and he had to retire, and he's taking care of him, and he was just in terrible shape. Well, in 2019, Melanie called me and said, Remember Alan, the guy that Bill told you about, that he wants to meet you, and he wanted to know if I could give him your email. Can I? And I said, oh, please do, Melanie, do. So I did, and all of a sudden I started getting these letters, long uh, email letters from Alan, and we had started this wonderful pen pal communication. He has a pied in Burlingame, so he comes about once a month, and we meet up. He's, he, Alan is um, very careful about COVID. Very careful, because, and so he won't, still won't eat in a restaurant, but we meet in a park near my office when he comes, and we have a nice lunch together with his little dog, Gino. And Alan has an amazing story in his own right. Um, his lover, um, when he got sick, he insisted that Alan get a dog, and um, and they, uh, he insisted they get married, so they got officially married, and then his lover died, like like me, he was so devastated, he didn't know what to do, so he sold the house and moved to Morro Bay. Anyway, Al and I still have an ongoing relationship, and I'm loving it. He writes me letters that, like, I'll, I'll turn my phone on before I get out of bed in the morning, and I have his email, and I, I'm laying in bed laughing my head off, and I haven't done that in, in years. So anyway, it's a great relationship, and it's developing. Good. And I hope it goes on for That's a good. long time. Yeah. Well, thank you, Roger. Um, I still think you have one of the most fascinating stories, life stories that I know of. Um, I love how you've come to this place right now where you're fairly happy with yes, your life. Yes, I, I am. Gr grieving still, that will never go away. But, right. but opening to new things, having the courage to open mm. yourself up to right. some new things, yes. which I think Don would be really proud of you for doing that. Well, I think, I feel like I've been guided by Don. Yeah. I really felt when Don's spirit left his body, I felt that his spirit entered my body because I became more and more like him. I emulated him, I channeled him because he was so perfect in every way. And that's been, that's been really an asset for me to yeah. have patterned my life after Don. And I often think, what would Don do? And usually things work out because I figure out what Don would do and I do it. Mm -hmm. There. Well, thank you for sharing all of that yeah. with us yeah. and our PFLAG listeners. And um, I hope we both go on to have a long, long and deep friendship. Thank you, Rosemary. Yeah. Thank you for listening. It's, it's fun to share. And it makes me sad, and it makes me happy. But it's just a really nice experience, and I love PFLAG. Good. Good. Me too. Yeah.